Section 35 of Volume 1B of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Emily. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1b, Section 35, Chapter 17, Part 3. After this composure of domestic differences and this restoration of the government to its natural state, there passes an interval of eight years which affords not many remarkable events. The Duke of Lancaster returned from Spain having resigned to his rival all pretensions to the crown of Castile upon payment of a large sum of money, and having married his daughter, Philippa, to the king of Portugal. The authority of this prince served to counterbalance that of the Duke of Gloucester, and secured the power of Richard, who paid great court to his eldest uncle, by whom he had never been offended, and whom he found more moderate in his temper than the younger. He made a session to him for life of the Duchy of Guienne, which the inclinations and changeable humor of the Gascons had restored to the English government, but as they remonstrated loudly against this deed, it was finally, with the Duke's consent, revoked by Richard. There happened an incident which produced a dissension between Lancaster and his two brothers. After the death of the Spanish princess, he espoused Catherine Swineford, daughter of a private knight of Hainault, whose alliance York and Gloucester thought the dignity of their family much injured. But the king gratified his uncle by passing in Parliament a charter of legitimation to the children whom that lady had borne him before marriage, and by creating the eldest Earl of Somerset. The wars, meanwhile, which Richard had inherited with his crown, still continued, though interrupted by frequent truces according to the practice of that age, and conducted with little vigor by reason of the weakness of all parties. The French war was scarcely heard of, the tranquillity of the northern borders was only interrupted by one inroad of the Scots, which proceeded more from a rivalship between the two marital families of Piercy and Douglas than from any national quarrel. A fierce battle or skirmish was fought at Otterbourne, in which young Piercy, surnamed Hotspur, from his impetuous valor, was taken prisoner, and Douglas slain and the victory remained undecided. Some insurrections of the Irish obliged the king to make an expedition into that country, which he reduced to obedience, and he recovered, in some degree, by this enterprise, his character of courage, which had suffered a little by the inactivity of his reign. At last, the English and French courts began to think in earnest of a lasting peace, but found it so difficult to adjust their opposite pretensions that they were content to establish a truce of twenty-five years. Brest and Cherbourg were restored, the former to the Duke of Brittany, the latter to the King of Navarre. Both parties were left in possession of all the other places which they held at the time of concluding the truce, and to render the amity between the two crowns more durable, Richard, who was now a widower, was affianced to Isabella, the daughter of Charles. This princess was only seven years of age, but the king agreed to so unequal a match, chiefly that he might fortify himself by this alliance against the enterprises of his uncles, and the incurable turbulence, as well as inconstancy, of his barons. 
the administration of the king though it was not in this interval sullied by any unpopular act except the seizing of the charter of london which was soon after restored tended not much to corroborate his authority and his personal character brought him into contempt even while his public government appeared in a good measure unexceptionable indolent profuse addicted to low pleasures he spent his whole time in feasting and jollity and dissipated in idle show or in bounties to favorites of no reputation that revenue which the people expected to see him employ in enterprises directed to public honor and advantage he forgot his rank by admitting all men to his familiarity and he was not sensible that their acquaintance with the quality of his mind was not able to impress them with the respect which he neglected to preserve from his birth and station the earls of kent and huntingdon his half-brothers were his chief confidants and favorites and though he never devoted himself to them with so profuse an affection as that with which he had formerly been attached to the duke of ireland it was easy for men to see that every grace passed through their hands and that the king had rendered himself a mere cipher in the government the small regard which the public bore to his person disposed them to murmur against his administration and to receive with greedy ears every complaint which the discontented or ambitious grandees suggested to them gloucester soon perceived the advantages which this dissolute conduct gave him and finding that both resentment and jealousy on the part of his nephew still prevented him from acquiring any ascendant over that prince he determined to cultivate his popularity with the nation and to revenge himself on those who eclipsed him in favor and authority he seldom appeared at court or in council he never declared his opinion but in order to disapprove of the measures embraced by the king and his favorites and he courted the friendship of every man whom disappointment or private resentment had rendered an enemy to the administration the long truce with france was unpopular with the english who breathed nothing but war against that hostile nation and gloucester took care to encourage all the vulgar prejudices which prevailed on this subject forgetting the misfortunes which attended the english arms during the later years of edward he made an invidious comparison between the glories of that reign and the inactivity of the present and he lamented that richard should have degenerated so much from the heroic virtues by which his father and his grandfather were distinguished the military men were inflamed with a desire of war when they heard him talk of the signal victories formerly obtained and of the easy prey which might be made of french riches by the superior valor of the english the populace readily embraced the same sentiments and all men exclaimed that this prince whose counsels were so much neglected was the true support of english honor and alone able to raise the nation to its former power and splendor his great abilities his popular manners his princely extraction his immense riches his high office of constable all these advantages not a little assisted by his want of court favor gave him a mighty authority in the kingdom and rendered him formidable to richard and his ministers froissard a contemporary writer and very impartial but whose credit is somewhat impaired by his want of exactness in material facts ascribes to the duke of gloucester more desperate views and such as were totally incompatible with the government and domestic tranquillity of the nation according to that historian he proposed to his nephew roger mortimer earl of marche whom richard had declared his successor to give him immediate possession of the throne by the deposition of a prince so unworthy of power and authority 
and when Mortimer declined the project, he resolved to make a partition of the kingdom between himself and his two brothers, and the Earl of Arundel, and entirely to dispossess Richard of the crown. The king, it is said, being informed of these designs, saw that either his own ruin or that of Gloucester was inevitable, and he resolved by a hasty blow to prevent the execution of such destructive projects. This is certain, that Gloucester, by his own confession, had often affected to speak contemptuously of the king's person and government, had deliberated concerning the lawfulness of throwing off allegiance to him, and had even borne part in a secret conference where his deposition was proposed and talked of and determined. But it is reasonable to think that his schemes were not so far advanced. But whatever opinion we may form of the danger arising from Gloucester's conspiracies, his aversion to the French truce and alliance was public and avowed, and that court which had now a great influence over the king pushed him to provide for his own safety by punishing the traitorous designs of his uncles. The resentment against his former acts of violence revived, the sense of his refractory and uncompliant behavior was still recent, and a man whose ambition had once usurped royal authority, and who had murdered all the faithful servants of the king, was thought capable, on a favorable opportunity, of renewing the same criminal enterprises. The king's precipitate temper admitted of no deliberation. He ordered Gloucester to be unexpectedly arrested, to be hurried on board a ship which was lying in the river, and to be carried over to Calais, where alone, by reason of his numerous partisans, he could safely be detained in custody. The earls of Arundel and Warwick were seized at the same time. The malcontents so suddenly deprived of their leaders were astonished and overawed and the concurrence of the Dukes of Lancaster and York in those measures, together with the Earls of Derby and Rutland, the eldest sons of these princes, bereaved them of all possibility of resistance. A Parliament was immediately summoned at Westminster, and the King doubted not to find the peers, and still more the Commons, very compliant in his will. This House had in a former Parliament given him very sensible proofs of their attachment, and the present suppression of Gloucester's party made him still more assured of a favorable election. As a further expedient for that purpose, he is also said to have employed the influence of the sheriffs, a practice which, though not unusual, gave umbrage, but which the established authority of that assembly rendered afterwards still more familiar to the nation. Accordingly, the Parliament passed whatever acts the king was pleased to dictate to them. They annulled forever the commission which usurped upon the royal authority, and they declared it treasonable to attempt, in any future period, the revival of any similar commission. They abrogated all the acts which attained the king's ministers, and which that parliament who passed them and the whole nation had sworn inviolably to maintain. And they declared the general pardon then granted to be invalid, as extorted by force and never ratified by the free consent of the king. Though Richard, after he resumed the government, and lay no longer under constraint, had voluntarily, by proclamation, confirmed that general indemnity, this circumstance seemed not, in their eyes, to merit any consideration. Even a particular pardon, granted six years after to the Earl of Arundel, was annulled by Parliament, on pretense that it had been procured by surprise, and that the King was not then fully apprised of the degree of guilt incurred by that nobleman. The Commons then preferred an impeachment against Fitzalan, Archbishop of Canterbury, and brother to Arundel, 
and accused him for his concurrence in procuring the illegal commission and in attaining the king's ministers. The primate pleaded guilty, but as he was protected by the ecclesiastical privileges, the king was satisfied with a sentence which banished him the kingdom and sequestered his temporalities. An appeal or accusation was presented against the Duke of Gloucester and the Earls of Arundel and Warwick by the Earls of Rutland, Kent, Huntingdon, Somerset, Salisbury, and Nottingham, together with the Lords Spencer and Scrope, and they were accused of the same crimes which had been imputed to the Archbishop, as well as of their appearance against the King in a hostile manner at Haringey Park. The Earl of Arundel, who was brought to the bar, wisely confined all his defense to the pleading of both the general and particular pardon of the king, but his plea being overruled, he was condemned and executed. The Earl of Warwick, who was also convicted of high treason, was, on account of his submissive behavior, pardoned as to his life, but doomed to perpetual banishment on the Isle of Man. No new acts of treason were imputed to either of these noblemen. The only crimes for which they were condemned were the old attempts against the crown, which seemed to be obliterated by both the distance of time and by repeated pardons. The reasons of this method of proceeding it is difficult to conjecture. The recent conspiracies of Gloucester seem certain from his own confession, but perhaps the king and ministry had not at that time in their hands any satisfactory proof of their reality. Perhaps it was difficult to convict Arundel and Warwick of any participation in them. Perhaps an inquiry into these conspiracies would have involved in the guilt some of those great noblemen who now concurred with the crown, and whom it was necessary to cover from all imputation. Or perhaps the king, according to the genius of the age, was indifferent about maintaining even the appearance of law and equity, and was only solicitous by any means to ensure success in these prosecutions. This point, like many others in ancient history, we are obliged to leave altogether undetermined. A warrant was issued to the Earl Marshal, Governor of Calais, to bring over the Duke of Gloucester in order to his trial. But the Governor returned for answer that the Duke had died suddenly of an apoplexy in that fortress. Nothing could be more suspicious from the time than the circumstances of that prince's death. It became immediately the general opinion that he was murdered by orders from his nephew. In the subsequent reign, undoubted proofs were produced in Parliament that he had been suffocated with pillows by his keepers, and it appeared that the king, apprehensive lest the public trial and execution of so popular a prince and so near a relation might prove both dangerous and invidious, had taken this base method of gratifying and, as he fancied, concealing his revenge upon him. Both parties, in their successive triumphs, seem to have had no further concern than that of retaliating upon their adversaries, and neither of them were aware that, by imitating, they indirectly justified, as far as it lay in their power, all the illegal violence of the opposite party. This session concluded with the creation or advancement of several peers. The Earl of Derby was made the Duke of Hereford, the Earl of Rutland, Duke of Abermarle, the Earl of Kent, Duke of Surrey, the Earl of Huntingdon, Duke of Exeter, the Earl of Nottingham, Duke of Norfolk, the Earl of Somerset, Marquis of Dorset, Lord Spencer, Earl of Gloucester, Rolf Neville, Earl of Westmoreland, Thomas Piercy, Earl of Worcester, William Scrope, Earl of Wiltshire.
The Parliament, after a session of twelve days, was adjourned to Shrewsbury. The King, before the departure of the members, extracted from them an oath for the perpetual maintenance and establishment of all their acts, an oath similar to that of which had formerly been required by the Duke of Gloucester and his party, and which had already proved so vain and fruitless. Both King and Parliament met in the same dispositions at Shrewsbury. So anxious was Richard for the security of these acts, that he obliged the lords and commons to swear anew to them on the cross of Canterbury, and he soon after procured a bull from the Pope, by which they were, as he imagined, perpetually secured and established. The Parliament, on the other hand, conferred on him for life the duties on wool, wool fells, and leather, and granted him besides a subsidy of one-tenth and a half and one-fifteenth and a half. They also reversed the attainder of Tresillian and the other judges, and with the approbation of the present judges, declared the answers for which these magistrates had been impeached to be just and legal, and they carried so far their retrospect as to reverse, on the petition of Lord Spencer, Earl of Gloucester, the attainder pronounced against the two Spencers in the reign of Edward the Second. The ancient history of England is nothing but a catalogue of reversals. Everything is in fluctuation and movement. One faction is continually undoing what was established by another, and the multiplied oaths which each party exacted for the security of the present acts betray a perpetual consciousness of their instability. The Parliament, before they were dissolved, elected a committee of twelve lords and six commoners, whom they invested with the power both of lords and commons, and endowed with full authority to finish all business which had been laid before the houses, and which they had not had leisure to bring to a conclusion. This was an unusual concession, and though it was limited in the object, might either immediately or as a precedent have proved dangerous to the Constitution. But the cause of that extraordinary measure was an event singular and unexpected, which engaged the attention of the Parliament. After the destruction of the Duke of Gloucester and the heads of that party, a misunderstanding broke out among those noblemen who had joined in the prosecution, and the king wanted either authority sufficient to appease it or foresight to prevent it. The Duke of Hereford appeared in Parliament, and accused the Duke of Norfolk of having spoken to him in private many slanderous words of the king, and of having imputed to that prince an intention of subverting and destroying many of his principal nobility. Norfolk denied the charge, gave Hereford the lie, and offered to prove his own innocence by duel. The challenge was accepted, the time and place of combat were appointed, and as the event of this important trial by arms might require the interposition of legislative authority, the Parliament thought it more suitable to delegate their power to a committee than to prolong the session beyond the usual time which custom and general convenience had prescribed to it. The Duke of Hereford was certainly very little delicate in the point of honor when he revealed a private conversation to the ruin of the person who had entrusted him, and we may thence be more inclined to believe the Duke of Norfolk's denial than the other's asseveration. But Norfolk had in these transactions betrayed an equal neglect of honor, which brings him entirely on a level with his antagonist. Though he had publicly joined with the Duke of Gloucester and his party in all the former acts of violence against the king. The lists for this decision of truth and right were appointed at Coventry before the king. 
all the nobility of England banded into parties and adhered either to the one duke or the other. The whole nation was held in suspense with regard to the event. But when the two champions appeared in the field accoutred for combat, the king interposed to prevent both the present effusion of such noble blood and the future consequences of the quarrel. By the advice and authority of the parliamentary commissioners, he stopped the duel, and to show his impartiality, he ordered, by the same authority, both the combatants to leave the kingdom, assigning one country for the place of Norfolk's exile, which he declared perpetual, and another for that of Hereford, which he limited to ten years. Hereford was a man of great prudence and command of temper, and he behaved himself with so much submission in these delicate circumstances, that the king, before his departure, promised to shorten the term of his exile four years, and also granted him letters patent, by which he was empowered, in case any inheritance should in the interval accrue to him, to enter immediately into possession, and to postpone the doing of homage till his return. The weakness and fluctuation of Richard's counsels appear nowhere more evident than in the conduct of this affair. No sooner had Hereford left the kingdom than the king's jealousy of the power and riches of that prince's family revived, and he was sensible that by Gloucester's death he had only removed a counterpoise to the Lancastrian interest which was now become formidable to his crown and kingdom. Being informed that Hereford had entered into a treaty of marriage with the daughter of the Duke of Berry, uncle to the French king, he determined to prevent the finishing of an alliance which would so much extend the interest of his cousin in foreign countries, and he sent over the Earl of Salisbury to Paris with a commission for that purpose. End of section 35, chapter 17, part 3. Recording by Emily, Boston, Massachusetts.